This past week, I've been trying to catch as much as I could of the PGA Golf Tournament. If you enjoy golf and you've been watching, then you know this afternoon is going to be an exciting finish. Phil Mickelson, 50 years old, is actually in the lead going into this final round. And I just got to tell you, nowadays I tend to cheer for the old guys in these kind of golf tournaments. And so I'm going to be cheering for Phil, no question about it, and it'll be fun to watch and to see. But since I've been thinking a lot about golf this week, it made me think about one of the greatest golfers in the history of the game. And that was Babe Dietrichson. Babe Dietrichson was an incredible golfer. Her parents came from Norway. They immigrated to the United States. And Babe was actually born in Port Arthur, Texas. That's another foreign country. I lived in the Golden Triangle, I know. So she grew up there and she turned out to be an incredible athlete. I mean, she played baseball, basketball, tennis, swimming, volleyball, track and field. She played them all and was great at all of them. A reporter once asked her, is there anything you don't play? And she said, yes, dolls. No, Babe did not play with dolls. She was there to play the games. And she played well. She was amazing. She went to the 1932 Olympics. And at the 32 Olympics, she was in the javelin throw, the 800-meter hurdles, and the high jump. Now, she won gold in the first two. She would have won gold in the high jump. But on her last jump, she ran up and she jumped head first, like all people do today, they had never seen that before. And so when she did it, the judges were all just stunned. They got together and huddled, and they disqualified her because they'd never seen anybody jump that away. So they only gave her credit for the jump before, which meant she won the silver. No, she was that good. That's 1932. And it wasn't until 1935 that she decided to take up golf, all at 24 years old. She took up golf, and she was amazing. Immediately, she began to win. In 1937, she played in the L.A. Open, a men's tournament, and she made the cut. And it was there that she met George Zaharias. Now, George Zaharias was a wrestler as well as a golfer. He was also known as the Weeping Greek from Cripple Creek. The names were as bad back then as they are today for wrestlers. Now, the weeping Greek from Cripple Creek. So he was there at the golf tournament. He turned out to be partnered there with Babe, and they hit it off, and 11 months later, they were married. Well, she continued to win. She was winning golf courses, golf tournaments right and left. But not everybody was quite as amazed and happy as I am or other people then were, there was a reporter who would write, It would be much better if Babe and women like her stayed home, got themselves prettied up, and waited for the phone to ring. That was the expectations of a stereotype of women back in the 1940s. You need to stay home, pretty yourself up, and wait for the phone to ring. Babe didn't wait for the phone to ring. She went out to go play, and play she did. 
It was in the late 1940s. She wound up uh, getting with a few other women and they started the LPGA. Changed women's golf forever. When she started playing professional, she managed to win 13 tournaments in a row. She would win 80 tournaments in her career. She won 13 in a row. She was a dominating force, unbelievable. But it was in 1953 that she wound up getting cancer, colon cancer. And when she did, she went to the doctor and they had surgery and the doctor told her, you know, your golfing career is over. But he didn't obey. She started going back to church. You see, she'd been brought up Lutheran. But when you start playing in your golf tournaments and you're playing every Sunday, she kind of just drifted away from church, kind of got out of the habit. But now this happened and she found herself back in church. She would say, when you have to confront a disease, an illness like this, it'll lead you back to the Lord because He is the only one who can strengthen your spiritual muscle. She needed to strengthen the spiritual muscle to not be afraid, to face life. And that's what she did. She came back to church. Her spirit began to grow. And that year, in 1953, she went out and she played in the U.S. Open with a colostomy. And she won. She was amazing. But something else happened to Babe when all this took place and she started going back to church and having to confront her cancer. And what changed was the way that she treated people. You see, as you come along and here you're a youngster and you just dominate boys and girls in all the different sports, it was kind of easy to become a little cocky, braggadocious. I mean, you know, an example, if you were going to be paired with her as a partner, she'd say, oh, we're going to be playing against each other today. You know you're going to lose. Well, and they did. <laughs> she, you know, I mean, that's just kind of was her spirit. But after the cancer and now back in church, that changed. And people said it was so strange. She would come up to you, we're going to be playing together, and she'd say, how can I help you? There's a total different experience. And I think that makes perfect sense because you and I know that how we treat people really is a great... Um, expectation of how we're walking with the Lord. Because if you're walking with Christ, then you're going to treat other people differently. Kindness and respect. If you want to know how close you're walking with Christ, take a moment and look at how you're treating other people. Because if you're walking close, then you will treat them with kindness and respect in a different way. I believe that that's what Micah was talking about in our scripture lesson today. You see, Micah was a prophet around 700 BCE. Both plus and a little minus there when he'd be doing it. He was in the south, in the country of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. He was not in Jerusalem. He, no, he grew up in a small town outside of Jerusalem. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know Jerusalem is the epitome of the places to go, the high and the holy he was not of nobility, he was not of power, he was not of wealth. 
He was a common man living in a small town who looked at his country and he brought judgment and evaluation. And what Micah basically said was, look at the way we are treating each other. What we see is we see those who are powerful taking advantage of those who are powerless. We see the rich taking advantage of the poor. What we see is among all the common people, we don't trust each other. We are not people of our word. We are not respectful of one another. We do not walk close with God. No, it was an indictment. We as the people of Israel are not worshiping Yahweh and staying close to God because if we did, then we would be treating each other different. Our behavior is an indictment in our relationship with God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so what Micah said was there will be judgment. Things are going to happen because of the way we've been treating one another. But he went on to say this is a God who forgives our iniquities and casts our sin into the sea, a God of steadfast love, and a God who will show compassion on us again. It was a message that there will be judgment. There will be problems that happen because of the way we have strayed from God and we treat each other. But God is the forgiveness of God, the gift of God's grace. There will be hope and redemption. I believe that's the message that we read in the poem, The Hill We Climb. We decided that we would have a sermon series on that poem, The Hill We Climb. It was written by Amanda Gorman, been telling you about it each week. It was presented first at the inauguration. But it's not a poem about Biden or about Harris. No, it's a poem about our country. It's about looking at our country and making decisions about what do we see? How are we treating each other? And yet it's a poem that also is one of hope, a belief that we can continue to do better and we can have a better country, a better world with each other. I believe it's very much the same exact spirit and the message that we read in Micah. And so this morning I want to continue moving through this poem and looking at it in the eyes of faith and asking ourselves the question, how close am I walking with Christ? How am I treating people? Because how I'm treating people will really tell you it's a good indicator of how close I walk with Christ. Three things. Amanda writes, we will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens. Our blunders can become their burdens. I came across a great story recently about a lady named um, Latanya, Latanya Young. She's now 44 years old. Three years ago, when she was 41, she really found herself in a difficult place. She's a single mother of three. She was working several jobs. She was a hairdresser, but she also had taken on other jobs and was an Uber driver. So whenever she wasn't doing one of the other two jobs, she could go out and try to get rides to really help pay the bills. Took everything she had to keep a roof over their head. They were still in government housing. 
just to try to pay the bills, put food on the table for the three children she had who were growing. You see, it had been a tough road to get there. Back when Latanya was 16 years old, she got pregnant and had her first child. She had to drop out of high school to get a job to take care of her child. She went back and she got her GED. Then she got married, had two more children. Then they got divorced. So she then decided, I've got to go to college. I've got to go to college. If I'm ever going to break this cycle, I've got to get a degree and a real job. And so she went to Georgia State University and signed up and started taking classes. She made it through one year, but there was so much need. There was still never enough money and now trying to work three jobs and go to school and take care of the kids. And it's finally enough, she just, she dropped out again. But she was out working in this August night back in, night, back in 2018 because they had just gotten a utility bill and it was for $150 and it was now piling up and if she didn't get the bill paid, they were going to cut off their utilities. So she was out driving late at night on an Uber trying to hopefully get some rides. She finally was able to get a passenger who had been to an Atlanta soccer game and his name was Kevin Esch. Kevin Esch had been to the game and now he needed to get home so he Ubered a ride and it was LaTanya who picked him up. Now, you know, sometimes when you get in a taxi cab or you're going to get in with an Uber driver or a Lyft driver, sometimes you get in and you just don't say a word and nobody talks. Other times you get in and you just kind of hit it off and the conversation never stops. Well, that's how it is with LaTanya. She never met a stranger and she is just loves to be able to visit. And so it was about a 30-minute ride back to Kevin's house and so they get into a conversation and Kevin said, the conversation was so genuine and authentic and just so easy. And she was asking, how's he doing? And he just couldn't help it. it was, he was so struggled, troubled. He had just gone through a divorce. That's why he was at the game alone and he was feeling alone. And so he just started saying, you know, I'm really kind of having a sad time right now and she then spoke up and said how she had been divorced for about eight years then and began trying to talk how she had gotten through it. They kind of led a little more to this person's story and that person's story and her story kind of poured out and, and then she even said why she was out working. She needed to get that $150 for a utility bill. Well, by the time the 30-minute drive was over and they arrived at his home, of course, the ride is paid up front, but you can give a tip, and so he did, of $150 to pay her utility bill. She was just blown away. Someone would do something that kind for me? Well, he paid her utility bill, but he had done a lot more than that. He had been saying to her, you got to go back to school. The next three years are going to go by, and you can either be exactly where you are, or you can go back to school, and you can have a degree, and you can break this cycle. You can do this. And he had so fired her up by the time the ride came to the end, she said, I am going to go to Georgia State tomorrow and see about re-enrolling. He said, here's my card. You stay in touch. And so the next day she went back down to go enroll. She filed her papers and they said, well, we got a hold on your account. You have an outstanding bill of $693. Now that was a huge hill to climb. That seemed like so much. 
And so she called Kevin and she said, I went to go enroll. I have a hold on my account. But I can tell you, I'm going to try to raise the money and I'm going to get it paid and I'm just going to do it. You were right. Well, that very day, Kevin went down to Georgia State. He did not tell her. He paid the $693 and cleared out her account. Now the university contacted her and said, you came and applied and you may now enroll because your account has been cleared. Again, she, she couldn't wrap her mind that around that a stranger, an Uber ride would be doing this. She called him up and said, I can't thank you enough. I will pay you back. You just know I will pay you back. And he said, you will pay me back by graduating. That's three years ago. Two weeks ago, she was graduating with a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice. She wants to be a federal probation officer. She has a real job, a real paycheck, moving out of government housing into their own apartment. But that's really just the beginning. She has her eyes set on law school. She has dreams, and they're coming true. And when this story kind of leaked out, it was actually Georgia State that put out on Facebook about a story of what's happening to one of their students and how an Uber ride changed her life. And once it got picked up, every just went viral. CNN, People Magazine, Good Morning America, you name it. Everybody wanted to ask questions and tell their story. And LaTanya said, I am happy to tell the story as much as people want to hear because I want to talk about Kevin's kindness. And I believe his kindness can inspire other people to do the same thing. She's written a book. It's going to be coming out sometime soon. And it's entitled, From Broken to Blessed. When they talked to Kevin, there's Kevin who said, well, you know, you understand, three years ago I was in such a bad place because of my divorce. And reaching out to help Tanya, that's the best thing I could have ever done. It did so much to help me. Our blunders do not have to become their burdens. We all have struggles and we have our mistakes. But we also have a God who cast our iniquities into the sea, who is going to be so compassionate, Micah said. The closer that we walk with God, the more we will treat each other differently. And all you got to do is look at how are you treating other people. It will tell you how closely you're walking with God. Our blunders do not have to be our burdens because of the grace of Christ. Secondly, Amanda writes, But one thing is certain, if we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy. I love that line. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy. What is your legacy? I read a story about a man named Ben Stern. Ben Stern is going to leave a legacy. He's about to turn 100 years old. 
It turns out that Ben was born in Poland back in uh, 1921. Grew up in a Jewish family, loved his mother and father, had seven brothers and sisters. He had a wonderful life. They were a family of faith. And then the Nazis came. They were forced into the ghetto in Warsaw. If you know about the ghetto in Warsaw, such a horrible place. So many people starved to death. His father would die. His oldest brother would die. He was there with his grandmother and his mom and sister. And he said there came a time when finally they moved everybody out and began to separate some people to the left and some people to the right. Then his mother and sister were pushed to the left and he was pushed to the right. And you were just kind of in this moving mass of people. And he said there was no time to stop and to hug, to say goodbye, to say I love you. He said his mother and sister were herded onto a cattle car and he never saw them again. They were sent to Treblinka and they were immediately put into a gas chamber. He went to Auschwitz. He would be in a number of camps over the coming years. The worst was when they took 7,000 men on a death march in wintertime. He was one of those 7,000 that started out. It went 33 days. For 33 days, they didn't see bread. When the march was over, there was 157 men left. He had survived. The things that happened when you listen to his story, it's hard to wrap your mind around. But he survived. The Americans came and they liberated his camp. He went to a displaced person's camp, and that's where he lived for a while. It was there that he met a woman who was also there, displaced, and they came to be friends, and they fell in love, and they got married, and they came to the United States. And he said, when I came to the United States, I didn't know how to speak English, I didn't have any skills, I didn't have an education, and I had no money. But I had two hands, and he worked. He worked hard, and he got an education, and learned English, and gained skills. They made a life. They raised up a family. He and his wife not long ago had been married for 70 years. But at that point, she was developing dementia. And Ben and his daughter knew that they needed to bring in or get help for her. And so they had a special home nearby where she went to go live. He was now living in this two-bedroom condo, very spacious by himself. He didn't drive anymore. But cognitively, he was perfectly fine, and he had some strength, enough that he could walk each day to go see her and visit with her. But it was his daughter who thought, I need someone to come and be my father's flatmate, someone who could come and live here, watch over Dad, maybe fix a few meals now and then just to kind of help. So she talked to a friend who was in the administration at Graduate Theological Union College. It's a religious college where people go for religious studies of all different types. And she asked her friend, do you know of any student who might want to come and get free room just to kind of help look over my dad? And she immediately said, I do. And she reached out to Leah Heitfeld. She wrote to Leah and said, there's this man named Ben. He needs someone to come live with him. He happens to be the most witty, humorous, and he is the best-looking old dude that I know. 
He's 95. Leah was 31. She was Jewish. And so they had an opportunity to sit down and to meet and to visit. And of course, Ben wanted to know, tell me about your parents. Tell me about your grandparents. And then she finally admitted, my grandfather was a soldier. More than that, my grandfather and grandmother were Nazis. They still look back, or they did to that moment in their life, as the best time of their life. They were unrepentant. They loved when the Nazis were in charge. It turned out that Leah's parents had distanced themselves from their parents because they didn't want Leah being exposed to that kind of bigotry. She'd only seen her grandparents three times, but she knew. And so she told Ben, and Ben said, you were a granddaughter. You were not responsible for what they did. You must not be held accountable for that or harmed. You're welcome to come and to live here. And so she came and she cooked some meals and they visit at night. And, and she said, you know, growing up in Germany, we learned all about the statistics and the numbers. But that's all we learned. For the first time, I'm sitting with someone and now I hear their story. And it puts a face to those numbers. I understand it in a different way. Well, as you can imagine, word spread that here is this Holocaust survivor who has welcomed this German girl whose parents were Nazis into his home. There was all kinds of publicity about it and, and they were happy to tell the story of, and he talked about, I think it seems like it's full circle. It was her distant relatives that forced me out of my home. And now I am welcoming their distant relatives into my home. He was asked, how did the Holocaust change you? And Ben said, it made me more compassionate. He is a man of great faith who goes to his synagogue. He seeks to walk close with God, Yahweh, God of Israel. And if you walk close with God, then it will affect the way you treat people. You can look at the way you treat people and know how closely you are walking with God. It was Micah, the prophet, who said, And what does the Lord require of you, O man? But that you do justice, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with your God. That's what Micah said is required of us. What is required of you? That you do justice, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with your God. For if we walk humbly with our God, then it will change the way that we treat each other with kindness, forgiveness, and respect. Let us merge mercy with might and might with right and love will be our legacy. And so third, so let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with. Let us leave behind a better country, 
than the one we were left with. What are you going to leave behind? What kind of world do you leave behind? You know, one of the things that I do that is so meaningful is funerals. I love doing weddings. Did one last night over at the Capitol. Had a great time. Very meaningful. But funerals are meaningful too. And whenever I do a funeral, I always sit down with a family and whoever wants to come and we just start talking about that person. Sometimes it's a person who's maybe been a member of this church for more than 30 years. I've been here 30. I listen to their story. I know so much of their story. Other times it may be a relative of a member and someone I didn't get to know, but I listen to the stories. I listen because I want to be able to stand up with integrity and sincerity, if possible, and be able to say, this person left this world a better place than they found it. I only say it if I can say it with integrity and sincerity. Will someone say that about you? You left this world a better place than you found it. Babe Dietrichson Zaharias was more than just a great golfer. Once she and George got married, she wanted to be a mother, wanted to have a family. And they tried having kids and a number of years went by and she had multiple miscarriages. The doctor said, you're not going to have children. So they decided to adopt. And they went to the adoption agency and said, we want to adopt a child. And they said, absolutely not. What kind of an example would you be for your children? A woman athlete? Disciplined? Hardworking? Compassionate? Successful? No. That's not the stereotype we have for women. What kind of an example would you be for your child? They would not let them adopt. Now you would think that babe could become very bitter and angry. But she didn't seem to be that way. No, what she did was rearrange her time so that she was going out and making sure there was time to start teaching kids golf. Especially girls. She started trying to make sure she was always teaching children golf. And then she got the cancer. It really became the problem. And what she did then was she became a spokesman for the American Cancer Society. You remember back in the 1950s and 60s, if you had cancer, you didn't talk about it. I remember that very well. In fact, so often, you know, doctors weren't supposed to tell their patients they had cancer. You weren't supposed to talk about it. And Babe was saying, we need to talk about it because if other people get screening, they won't have happened to them what happened to me. We need to all be encouraged to understand about cancer and to get out. She was a forerunner of a voice crying in a wilderness in a world that did not want to talk about testing and treatments for cancer and getting out there. She was doing it. I want to read you what she said. Don't think I'm kidding myself. I know that I'm not out of the rough. Every six months, I have to go back for an examination, never knowing what that examination will show. But until I get that bad news, I'm living life right up to the hilt. Funny thing how you have to be close to death to appreciate life. I've heard the sentence of doom and had my reprieve, 
Now I'm going to fight cancer with all that I've got so others can get that reprieve too. And then, like me, they find out that life is really worth living. She went out and began to speak about it. But she did something else too. She changed her schedule. And whenever she went to a golf tournament, whatever city, she now created time to go to the hospital to the children's cancer ward. Always taking toys and especially dolls. She was 45 years old when Babe passed away from cancer. She had changed women's golf forever. She had started a conversation about the role of women and how it could be viewed. She became a cancer advocate and began speaking up for testing. She and her husband George started a foundation for cancer research and another foundation to do nothing but teach children how to play golf. The children she never had. She blessed so many thousands upon thousands of lives. Babe Dietrichson Zaharias. She left the world a better place than she found it. And so can you. So can you. If you and I decide our blunders don't have to become burdens, that we will merge mercy with might and might with right and love shall become our legacy. We can leave this world a better place than we found it. What is required of you? Micah would say, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That is the hill we climb. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.